Warning, Star Trek from the holodeck contains adult language and discussions. If you're easily offended, do not continue to listen. Walk it alone! Fire. Holodeck 3 program is reinstated. Open sesame! Commander Klingon vessel. We are energizing transport of him. Now. Welcome back to Star Trek from the Holodeck. We are desperately trying to play catch up. As we had alluded to during our last discussion, we all almost died, David specifically. <laughs> but we are back. We spent a little bit of time in the agony booth. That's what it really in felt the like. The agony booth, yes. Especially David. <laughs> Or, we, or it felt like a Gorn coming out of my chest. Oh, yeah. That's probably a better comparison there. Or analogy. Yeah. Analogy. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> I like that one. Okay. So today we'll be talking about Strange New Worlds, Episode 9, titled All Those Who Wander. The synopsis, the U.S. Enterprise crew comes face to face with their demons and scary monsters, too, when their landing party is stranded on a barren planet with a ravenous enemy. The episode was directed by Christopher J. Bryan and written by Davey Perez. So I want to start, David, by talking about the writer of this episode. And we're going to spend a few minutes on this specifically. Uh, Davey Perez is I mean, an excellent writer, period. And prior to Strange New Worlds, he was a producer and writer on the long-running Supernatural series, Supernatural. Uh, he was by far one of the top writers of the final few seasons of the show. Uh, interestingly, the podcast that paved the path for this show and our network as a whole is the Crossroads podcast, a yes. podcast that broke down weekly episodes of Supernatural. And because of that, I was involved in some deep analysis of the writing, the directing, and the cinematography behind that show. And through... Our analysis over the course of years, the, the host and I on the show came to the conclusion that Davey Perez isn't just a capable writer, but he has the ability to flesh out a world within a world, meaning he is great at cosmology, building out a world, taking small established canon and adding nuance, and by doing so, Create something incredibly unique. He did this on Supernatural with episodes like American Nightmare, Stuck in the Middle, and Mint Condition, which is one of my favorites. And he's doing this on Strange New Worlds. Yes. He has written both Gorn-eccentric episodes, and by doing so, he's expanded the cosmology of Trek in an incredible way. I mean, he's taking bits of established canon and finding creative ways to work within the sandbox. Yes. And he's doing it in a way that has not pissed anyone off yet because he's being careful. And the reason why I say pissed off anyone, because we know with Star Trek, it comes with 50 years of stories and, you know, and established canon and mythos. And as of this time period in Star Trek, almost nothing is known of the Gorn. In fact, it was alluded to, I, 
I believe in the original series that Kirk was the first really to truly lay eyes on the Gorn when he fought against, you know, mano y mano on the planet, the most masculine, masculine episode, episode of all time yes. of any television show <laughs> so over the top. It's ridiculous, but you know, it's, it's become a bit of a, a cult classic in a lot of ways. Even people that don't watch Star Trek know about that classic, that classic episode, you know, Kirk versus the, the green lizard, you know, the Gorn. And we find out that through the course of season one that, yeah, okay. Perhaps the, 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 the legend is no one has ever seen the Gorn, but the truth of the matter is that people have seen them, but they I've haven't lived to tell about it. So the Gorn are out and about, but they're highly dangerous. And that's what Davy Perez has managed to do so well. He has managed to work within the confines of established canon and come up with these interesting little elements like, for example, the hatchlings. Yes. Oh, okay, so no one's ever, ever seen a Gorn, but what if I do hatchlings? Exactly. They don't fully look like Gorn yet, so it can still work. And I like that because that's using creativity to tell your story. Tell your story and actually add uh, some nuance to a prior known character. Mm-hmm. It's it it literally the species. What yeah. he's able to do with the Gorn species is make the Gorn just as scary as the first time we ever saw the Borg. Yeah. Only oh, worse. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Because if you if you told me who would you rather be captured by, Dave, the Borg who's going to assimilate you, or the Gorn who's going to turn you into a hatchling? Uh, definitely, I would like to be assimilated. I'd rather be assimilated. <laughs> I would like to be like eight of nine, so that exactly. I can stand next to seven of nine. That's, For sure, thoughts. You're in the collective. You're in her brain. She's in your brain. You can yeah. do things with each other. That's fine. It can be a whole erotic thing. A Gorn, the Gorn thing, the way Davy Perez is basically really added to the species is make them more of a threat, which is something that I think me and you have talked about in the past about Star Trek. We need that new threat. And I think this is it. This is it. I'm sorry, the Gorn you, I hope they make the Gorn kind of strange new worlds, you know, main villain, the elusive like, evilness yes. that goes bump in the, in that the goes shadows bump in the that night. you never see. Happen. They have to make the Gorn, to Strange New Worlds, what the Borg was to TNG. But, but even, I think they even have a, a greater challenge here because you have to, if they keep doing this, they have to be creative, like in this episode and the prior episode. Um, the one that was one of my, you weren't here for that discussion. Yes. The one that I did by myself, where the entire thing was essentially a metaphor for, you know, uh, uh, naval combat. Naval combat. Which is something, you know, we've discussed, I love. Yes. So they kept finding creative ways so far this season, two times. Like, see, I don't want to be over hyperbolic here, but twice this season in 10 episodes, they've managed to find ways to use the Gorn without disrupting what's been established. Yes. And add, just adding to their mystique, like the thing that I always felt the downfall of the Borg was they turned them into the villain of the month. Villain of the week, or villain of the you week? You mean in even. Voyager? Yeah. yeah, in Voyager, where they basically, yeah, they were they they were the Borg, but they were almost seen kind of like a a nuisance instead of like an a viable oh my god threat. We need to get out of here. This is going to be scary. We don't want to be part of them. It, it became more of an existential threat as opposed to a physical a threat. physical threat. Yeah, which d- did work, but by making it work for one show. 
you inadvertently undermine the overall threat. Yes. And then when you actually, in this episode, just see the horror elements that he was able to add to the mystique of the Gorn, mm-hmm. it takes that species now from like the cheesy comedy and the gloriousness of the glorious B the, film. Yeah. B film of Captain Kirk fighting a Gorn by himself on the planet. It's so fucking pulpy. I to love it. All of a sudden, if that actually happened, Kirk would have been infected and he would have actually had no hatchlings <laughs> coming out of his chest. Yeah. That is horrible. <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. So let's talk about the ways that they create this feeling of dread without actually showing really anything, but you know, hatchlings essentially. Yes. But this has, again, has a lot to do with Davy Perez. His skill set goes beyond the cosmological. I mean, he can write the hell out of a horror script. Yeah. It makes sense that he's been assigned to expand the Gorn mythos the way they, they have this season. I mean, there are, yeah, I, I would definitely say there are Lovecraftian themes being utilized, especially when you examine the relational elements that the Gorn and Laanne share and how it's been used to inform her development and characterization. Because it's part of her trauma. Yes. And you're using dread and fear of the unknown as not just ways to establish character, but also in the development of the aesthetics of an episode. Lovecraft used, used these elements to heighten fear and tension, which relied on an elusive fear, something you couldn't quite put your finger on, which we saw in episode four, which was titled Memento Mori. And this episode, uh, and Lovecraft was a bit of an existentialist. And his view of the universe reflected that. He viewed humanity as insignificant in comparison to the peripherals of the universe. And in a sense, the universe wants to kill us. Or they could be viewed as, or it can be viewed as indifferent. And this is what Perez is doing. He's using existentialist thought to aid in the feeling of dread, where the Gorn is the manifestation of the unknown within the universe. These are dark themes. These are very dark themes. And when you throw it into like just how the episode was formatted and the fate of everyone of all the characters that dealt in this episode, it does feel very Lovecraftian. While we get a happy ending, it's not too happy when you think about it, because the, the amazing thing about like this particular episode too, is like this, I think this was the first episode where death, of characters really hits you, but in a horrific way. Like you feel like every time a character died in this episode, you're like, Oh my God, no way. That was brutal. No, no, don't die like that. (laughs) And it goes to like what you said, connecting to that Lovecraftian ideology where it's kind of like in all the Lovecraftian tales, the hero might win the day. But he'll have some scars to go with him. And many times he doesn't even know who his enemy is. Exactly. The protagonist in the Lovecrafting stories. It's elusive. That's the thing. Sure, there are stories out there where you definitely definitively know what the threat is. But many times that's the, the, the climax, the, the, the threat, the, the greatness of Lovecraftian, as well as Davy Perez, is the fear of what we don't see. Exactly. We don't know what is actually trying to kill us. And that is why I absolutely love this episode. 
And David, you mentioned dark themes and as well as I have. Some people out there, because we're dealing with Star Trek here, ultimately. They may say, oh, wow, these are some dark themes, you know, and some might want to reject this due to their apparent contradiction of Star Trek ideals. But if anything, it strengthens yet again the Star Trek utopian idealized vision of the future by using lighter themes to solve the problems of dread and existentialism, like, for example, friendship, yes, optimism, and kindness. And the thing is, they took the, the one character that was really important to make this tone work in, the, in, in this episode was Hammer. Because remember, up to this point, Hammer has been kind of like that comedic character that we all have grown to love on the lighter side of Star Trek Strange New Worlds. Using him, and I thought it was genius on Davy Perez's part, was if you notice, like, every single moment there was a dark moment, there'd be a time when Hammer can actually shine. You know, whether he's giving advice or whether it's uh, talking with another character, those moments make the uh, ter- almost take that dark tone and just tap it up a notch. We don't want our audience going totally crazy. We just want to show them the edge of madness. <laughs> we don't want to push them over the edge. And Hammer was used in that way th- throughout the episode to kind of take the audience by the hand. Hey, don't worry about it. It's going to be okay. But then I thought what was a genius move as a writer, you take that person that basically has been the, I guess you could say the crutch for the, the audience for the entire episode and you have him basically go away. He's the one who pays the ultimate price. If that's not Lovecraftian, I don't know what is. That is the perfect Lovecraftian story arc. It's great. I have no problem with it. And I, I had a feeling and let's just move into this element. Now the, the hammer stuff moving into the more pertinent story aspects, we were given quite a bit in the way of characters, the narrative work to move various characters around and either conclude their story like hammer strengthen their story like Uhura or foreshadow things to come. Exactly. Like Laan. Laan. Hammer's story was surprisingly brought to an end, but I had a feeling they were going to kill him off because if you know what to look for, there's just things, the way he was talking to Uhura and her decision still that the fact that it wasn't made yet, whether or not she was going to stay on board the enterprise and looking at how they connected those two characters together. I realized that they are preparing for him to be killed off. I, I just, Felt it because it's about Uhura. Many of the things with Hammer were always about because this is what you do as as a good writing team is you use other you use secondary characters to bolster your primary characters. Primary characters, yes, and that's exactly what they did with Hammer and Uhura. And when he told, oh, what did he? I think it was to Spock. I want to say when he said, "I will, I will not kill, but I will do whatever I need to do to protect this crew." Yes. And I was like, oh, dude, he's going to fucking he's die. He's going to fucking die. He's going to sacrifice himself in order to stick to his ideals. And that's exactly what he did. Rather than picking up a weapon and killing the Gorn hatchlings, what did he do? He stepped in front of the venom and willingly sacrificed and save himself mm-hmm. to save. I mean, he to willingly save. sacrificed himself to save others. To save others. Yeah. So I thought that was brilliant and such a great way to bring such an 
interesting character story to an end. And, and I will say that if you kill a character off, that's how you make it count. Yes. You, you attach a death to the greater intent of a lead character. And you make us care. That's the thing I think a and lot of a lot of writers you nowadays. You have to give the death purpose. You have to give the death purpose. Well, what's because, the point? Because at the end of the day, you will have the audience basically going, well, why do we care if this character died? And by the end of this episode, you really do feel like, oh, man, this was Hammer Sendoff. But not just, you know. Not just do we care about the character, but like, why are you killing him? What writing is a fucking strategy. Yes. Why are you killing him? And we know why. It's about pushing Uhura into that communication seat. Yes. She was on the fence, and through his death, Uhura found her own meaning and purpose, which has been her story since the beginning of the season. She's adrift. Yeah. She's not quite sure what she's supposed to be doing. And it feels like. Through Hemmer's death, she has been able to solidify her own purpose. Yes. And in a lot of ways, that is, just like what you said, the important part. You take a, a character's actions and make it work and purposeful for the character growth of your other characters. Especially if it's your main character, like Uhura is. Because... I was the, the the initial thing that I was like telling myself, okay, something bad's gonna happen to Hammer was the fact that he gets peer teamed up with Uhura, who at the beginning of the episode is questioning about her purpose on the Enterprise. And I'm automatically like going, Oh no. Is something bad gonna happen to Hammer? I hope not. <laughs> I because I really like this character. I've been, I've grown up to like him. And that's the beautiful thing too, is like a lot of people are comparing this to other Star Trek deaths like Tasha Yar to... No one cared about Tasha Yar. No one cared about point. Tasha at that time. I, I felt like... Because I, I recently watched... The, I, I rewatched Star Trek continually. And I, I want to say four months ago, I finished my TNG rewatch. And I, I, that Tasha Yar, it just didn't hit. It's weird because when she died, I didn't care. You didn't care. But because they kept her story going... Mm -hmm after her death for so long and the way they connected her death to and her presence or her lack of presence to the rest of the crew, as well as Worf's development. And, and of course, data's development. I cared about it afterwards. But now this is like hammers is like you cared about it before. And now you're going to care about it afterwards because of the legacy that it helped establish with Uhura. Yep. What death do you think is more impactful in Star Trek? And we're going to take Spock's out of, out of the equation because it's because he obviously, came back, <laughs> he came back, came but, back. I, but also all of us are going to say Spock's death was the most emotionally hitting of all time because it fucking was to this day. I can put in Star Trek two and I'm like, <laughs> what? I think the most permanent, uh, we're talking permanent death. I think, permanent. I think Jet Z is, I was about to say was fucking shocking it was shocking it was and then, so shocking and literally came out of nowhere and but the thing about her death was a lot of people nowadays like at that time saw it like so wasteful because a lot of star trek fans knew something was going on behind the scenes and she was gonna get written off but the way they handled it without her death we wouldn't have that absolutely fantastic villain turn of Galtukat. They made it work. They made it work because without what happened to Dax, 
we would never see Goldicott as like this ultimate evil, the the ultimate bad guy. It was after that where we're like going, okay, there is no redemption for Goldicott, and the character himself doesn't care. Right. <laughs> and also, so- you got to remember, ultimately, again, because you're dealing with a great showrunner. Um, shit, what's his name? Oh we talk about him all the time, <laughs> and of course, we're going to forget his name now. Um, Ira Stephen Burr. Ira, that's right. It's Ira, Ira. Stephen Burr. Uh, he, because he's such a good showrunner, and he had such a great team of writers at that time, he was able to take the horrible decisions made off of camera Ira. by the executives, not the writing team, and make it work for everyone else. Because yes. it really pushed Worf's story forward. It pushed it pushed sure story forward. Yes. It pushed. Cork's story forward. It pushed Cisco's story forward in really big ways. Her death resonated all throughout that final season. Yeah. And that's the thing when it comes to characters of, that have had permanent deaths. I you think just have to Dax, make it count, right? Yeah. You have to make it count. And if you look at TNG Tasha's, yes, it had ongoing ramifications, but it didn't hit hard at the initial go because we barely knew anything about Tasha. And then the other, uh, the other one that I was going to bring up was the one in Voyager. I can't forget. I can't, uh, right now her name eludes me, but um, the one alien species that uh, she passed away and she kept becoming a reoccurring. No more. Cass. Cass. Because Cass died. Cass died. No, she didn't. Yeah. She like evolved. Into some weird, like, <laughs> Mike, Mike, you <laughs> evolved. She got, she, she died. She basically passed on to another life. <laughs> I don't remember, but, but like, when it comes to like permanent character deaths, I think you're right. I think it is Dax that had the most, I guess you could say, like, biggest mark on a series. I mean, yeah, and I know that a lot of Star Trek fans are going to be saying, you know, like Spock or data even, but my issue with data's death was it got carried on into Picard and I don't think it was treated well, nor did it push anyone's story forward. I mean, you could say it pushed Picard's story forward. I was okay with his death in nemesis. I, I, that's why I was, listen, Nemesis isn't the greatest Star Trek movie of all time, but the death and what it did for the story and the sacrifice, it all, it showed that data was finally, he understood human, human. Okay. If he was just a, a, an emotionless Android, right. Which was like the big story arc for years about him. Like, is he conscious? Is he truly sentient or is he just programmed? You remember how they went back and forth through the initial seasons of TNG with that? Oh yeah. Well, to end TNG, which is what Nemesis was going to do, it, an android who doesn't have feelings, emotions, care, anything, isn't going to sacrifice himself to no. save his friend, his captain. And yet he did. And I feel like that was the definitive statement. Look what he did. He saved someone who he truly cared about. He did the ultimate human act. By sacrificing himself to save his captain and everyone else. That, to me, was was perfect. It was didn't. Perfect. It didn't need to be redone essentially in Picard season one. So I think retrospectively, his death kind of sucked in Nemesis because of what they did exactly. in season one. In season so, yeah. one, that's why I'm like going. That's why when that's why I said I know that there's going to be fans telling us, listening to us, saying that no. What about Data? I'm like going. Data's death was great. 
But when you look at the ramifications of it, it wasn't treated right. I think Picard's death in season one of Picard was the best. I think that really <laughs> did a lot for the story. I mean, it really just moved the entire fucking story forward in a really oh, big way. In a big way. I mean, look how it paid off in season two. I mean, they really touched on it a lot and just fucking great. What a great death scene. It was such a, it was such a great idea. <laughs> was, Honestly, I think the greatest death in Star Trek is Michael Shaban. <laughs> All right, it's fucked up. Let's not be negative here. Okay, so let's bring it back to this specific episode here. And listeners out there, if you want to throw in your hat when it comes to your opinions and thoughts on the best death of Star Trek, when I say best, I'm talking basically everything that we talk about, why it is. What did it it do? What did it do for the story moving forward? That's what equates to a good death. What did it do? It can't just be shock value. So hit us up. Twitter, Facebook, let us know. All right, so let's talk about Spock and Chapel. <laughs> yeah, you mean the relationship you you are angered at mostly? I love it. What are you talking about? I'm just jealous. <laughs> exactly. You're jealous. I'm insanely jealous. <laughs> I felt like this was another really strong factor in this episode. The writers keep building on this relationship in a way that goes far beyond simply a flirtatious one. In fact, it would appear that they are using Chapel strategically to flesh out Spock's identity struggles and the subsequent emotional contradictions yes. that he goes through. This feels very similar to the strategy between Hemmer and Uhura. Mm-hmm. They're doing a similar thing here with Chapel and Spock. They're using a secondary character to bolster a primary or even a legacy character which they have to and this is the one thing that i was really happy with that we have to understand that this is spock at a very young age where we initially know him we know him initially from captain kirk and the original crew of the enterprise this is a younger spock this is a spock who is not found his quote-unquote Vulcan center of being to be kind of like in balance. He's still young. It's an element they've been, I mean, this is a struggle they have alluded to uh, back and forth for the greater part of what, the last three, four decades? Yes. (laughs) That this character begins, you know, that we understand that this character struggles with his emotions. Even Kelvin Timeline, 2009, J.J. Abrams reboot. That's how they, they gave us, or I should say they built an emotional edge for Zachary Quinto Spock in the 2009 film. Yeah. They showed his struggle between humanity and Vulcan and those emotions that he can't quite keep in control and using the death of, the, of his mother and Vulcan to really get, or the destruction of Vulcan to get under his skin. So this is something that a lot of writers have been doing throughout the years because it works in a really good way. And it's a great way to dissect identity issues, which is problems that a lot of people have throughout their life. Um, I really like the Chapel and Spock relationship. I know I I get a little douchey with it from time to time, but on just a sheerly academic sense from a writing perspective, she's the only person it's, that's why it's so great. She's the only person in a lot of ways that really truly understands him that truly understand yeah exactly truly understands him and side note here i just got done re-watching the star trek the original series episode 
a private little war. And interestingly, in this episode, Spock gets injured and Mbenga walks in to sickbay and catches Chapel holding Spock's hand. Yes. And then she gets embarrassed and throws his hand down. <laughs> so this is all very much a part of established canon. That's what makes it that much better because they've always alluded to that, that there's like a, an unspoken relationship, relationship between Chapel and Spock. Well, even like, remember we made the joke, like in the, in the, uh, when me and you were talking about the original motion picture, yeah, Spock shows up so and Chapel looks so happy to see him, but this is when Spock is totally imbalanced and right. suppresses his emotions. And you can see kind of like a little emotion in her face. Like she's really sad. Right. Because, because he doesn't even acknowledge he her. He doesn't acknowledge her. Well, he doesn't because he has no emotions now. Right. Until the very well, end when all of a sudden, you know, he grabs Kirk's hand. <laughs> <laughs> it still makes me laugh. Yeah. So we see Spock struggling with his emotion after allowing it to flood his senses, which I had a feeling that was going to happen when Lieutenant Kirk you know, kind of, not kind of did take out his aggression. <laughs> I was about to say that. Nah, I wasn't kind of. <laughs> and questioned his, his lack of emotion. You're showing it. It bothered Spock that, and not because it hurt his feelings. I don't think he, obviously he cares about people, obviously. And it felt like because Ethan Peck is such a great actor, you can read his emoting so well, or I should say he emotes so well, that's easily read. And interpreted, but you get the sense that he was bothered, not with the insult, but bothered that someone would think he doesn't care. Exactly. And that's why when he was allowing his emotions to flood his body, you know, what do you say? He was recalling things in order to get angry, get angry. Exactly. That goes back to establish things we've seen Spock up until the motion picture. I would even say beyond that, but it wasn't until what was it? What the colonar is that? Is that where you Colinar, purge all emotion? Yes. I always forget the names here, but you got to remember that this is a person trying to understand where he fits. Still, this was very much a part of the original series. It was a big part of the motion picture. His whole also suffering from a type of what identity crisis, identity crisis. mixed with a little bit of existentialism trying to find his own purpose. So this is a Spock who has always at this time has always been struggling with his identity and who he should be wants to be and how he's perceived. And that's why moments like this work so well, so well. And it, it really helps even further when you think about like how, how much stronger Spock becomes emotionally. Like there's a reason why he's able to he'll crumble at this point because he's still young. He's still taking, uh, taking, trying to take stock in what, what the emotions are going through his head. And then later on when he has to deal with the snarkyism of a Dr. McCoy and basically just brushes it off because that's, he's learned at that point in his life, he's grown, he's learned from his experiences. And this is actually one of those moments where we get to actually see Spock finally getting to that point where he's learning and he's, he's being taught how to try to become the Spock that we all know. Yeah. So, I mean, we get the, uh, and of course, as the years go by, I mean, we don't want to recap all of Spock's life, but we do know that he eventually comes to terms with, with who he is and that he yeah. realizes that he is human and Vulcan and he finds peace in that. 
Although, see, Karma, Karma on Sam's part, this is why he dies oh, off screen on oh, a planet. Come on. <laughs> Dude, I did laugh a little bit. I don't know if Davy Perez was purposely trying to make like a mockery of Lieutenant Kirk's death. But when he said, when he had Anson Mount, when Anson Mount said, or I should say Pike said, that you know he's tougher than he looks. I was like, no, he he died. No, he died. He died, he died <laughs> like a chump. What are you talking about? He died off screen, <laughs> and Kirk didn't even really care. <laughs> and that's the thing that I'm going to be cracking up at. I want to see the relationship I, between the Kirks. I I can't remember. Did they have problems? I don't know. I think you're thinking like the Picard. Yeah. So I feel like if we're going in this direction in order to justify, cause I've, that's never, that never sat well with me with the original series. (laughs) Hey, your brother's dead. All right. Another news. Another news. Like your fucking brother's (laughs) dead, bro. Like let's talk about it a bit. I'm hoping that they, Maybe create something like a tension between them. Yes, that they, they were be. that they were never quite close. They loved each other, but they're very different. They were distant. Yes, if they do something like that, that would really fix <laughs> that element in the original series that just never sat well with me. Yeah, because like, uh, and it's one of those things I was a little intrigued and a little surprised because originally when they introduced Lieutenant Kirk into the in into Strange New Worlds. I thought it was just supposed to be like a punchline, a joke that, Oh look here, we got Kirk. There you go. I didn't think he was going to be a part of the show. I didn't think yeah. he was going to be part of the show. And up to this point, dude, it's kind of interesting. They took a character. I did not think we'd see a lot of, but they've made him as one of like the more viable characters in the, in the show where it's like, you can have that moment mm-hmm. of him questioning Spock and scolding Spock and getting angry at him. And you can feel like that actually fits within the narrative of this crew. Right. And of course, then I'm chuckling at the end of the entire argument because I wanted to turn around and say, well, Kirk, at least you die off screen. So, you know, you get that. <laughs> okay. So let's move to Leanne. We just have a little bit to talk about her. A lot, a lot of this was this. a lot of this was just reiteration, which works. You do need yeah. to reiterate in order to establish firmly who your character is. But a lot of the things we we got for her were just reiterations, you know, strengthening former ideas. Mm-hmm. Leanne, Leanne temporarily leaves the Enterprise to help the small girl, Oriana, I want to say her name was, to find her family. Yeah. I don't know if this is going to be a long-term thing, if she's going to be in the finale, because I have not watched ahead, even though we are late. I have uh, only... I've stopped myself, because I like to have discussions solely based on the immediate episode. I don't know if she comes back now. Now that we've almost got to the end of the first season, I will say that she's one of my favorite new characters. I I really, really like what they have done with her character. This is, this is also another surprise. Like just like the removal of hammer. I was surprised with this because they've been, they took out two of the newer characters that they introduced us to that. We were, I was thinking we're going to be here for a long haul that, you know, I thought, Characters like Hammer and Anne would be here probably for a couple seasons. I know, especially. Yeah, I know. But like in one episode, you removed Hammer. And then I was surprised that they went with the route that and now I was surprised just with the creative choice. Narratively, I wasn't too surprised because you were heading towards that route. Yeah, because especially with the introduction of I can't I can't pronounce the girl's name again. 
Uh, the the young girl that she helps. Uh, Oriana? Yeah. The Well, no, not Oriana. The girl in this episode that she goes and helps find their, her family. Yeah, that's Ori, Oriana. Is that Oriana? Yeah, I believe so, yeah. And she decides to go help her, and I'm like, I was like going, well, it makes sense narratively because they've grown this, like, uh, th- this narrative attachment to each other throughout well, this episode. Yeah, they have some, she sees a little bit of herself. Herself in, in, in the her. Little girl, yeah. So it made sense for her to walk off, but I was really surprised that basically we're just going to take her off the ship. I actually thought that they would have actually kept Oriana on the ship to keep Anne on the ship. You know yeah. what I mean? Uh, just, just not as like a, not in a narrative purpose, but like in a creative choice purpose. Mm-hmm. As a writer, I thought, Creatively, you would have chosen to keep the young girl, this new character, because you lost Hammer. So here's this new character. Let's bring in Oriana and Anne as a dynamic. Yeah. Instead, they go, no, we're going to have Leanne do off into her own adventures and everything else. So Yeah. They also use that little girl in an interesting and unexpected way. And they (laughs) they connected. This is something I I questioned last episode discussion about Mbenga. Obviously, the issues that Mbanga's going through isn't easily forgotten. Yes. Even though he knows his daughter is alive, it doesn't change the fact that he misses her and yes. wants to be a part of her life in some way because look what he did with the little girl. He called her his daughter his inadvertently daughter. Yeah. because he's obviously struggling, struggling with that as well. So I, I, I do not think that element's over because that was a question that I posed last episode are we done with this angle for Mbanga? And it goes back to like the strength of Davy's writing. Mm-hmm. Also, is like he does not waste anything. He connects all the dots. He connects all the dots, and I appreciate that as as like a person who studies writing and stuff with studying, you know, like critiquing all the shows that me and you have uh, have have watched. Mm-hmm. When a writer makes every single character matter. I really enjoy that. That shows the strength of the writer. Well, every character has to have a point. It has and to have a point. If the character doesn't have a point, then they should not be in the episode. But how many times do we have, like, so many shows nowadays? All, where it's all like, shows almost do this now. Because writers nowadays, Dave, don't know how to write. They don't know how to write. And they, they're like, too, well, there's too many channels, there's too much content, and there's not enough talent to fill up those writing rooms. Mm-hmm. So when we get writers like this, we need to love them and take care of <laughs> and them. Nurture them. And yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So let's talk a little bit about the VFX on Strange New Worlds. And I did get into this a bit during the discussion that you missed. The new virtual production has been a VFX godsend for Star Trek. <laughs> yes, it, it has. It has opened the scope, visually speaking, and has allowed amazing cinematic sequences that in years past just wouldn't have been possible. And it's such a seamless production, if you understand how it works. The fact that you have these, these LED screens, essentially, I'm just going to speak in layman's terms here, already having you know, 90% of the visual effects work done because it's, it's in the set. It's the people see the backdrop, but video, um, video production, the virtual production, I should say has been fantastic and discovery. We had talked about this, David, we weren't sure. I believe when we discussed this, but star Trek discovery season four is the first season of all of star Trek up until strange new worlds that that's utilized the virtual production 
And that's why discovery feels, feels so big. Yes. And and I should say, crazy worlds feels big and why Picard feels very limited and constrained at times. Oh, because it's not benefiting from that virtual production. But I can Mm -hmm. only imagine that season three of Picard is going to be huge or at least in appearance because of this virtual production. Now, I want to go through the basics. I'm not going to read all of this, but I do have a VFX breakdown of how it all works. And I will post this on our main uh, website version of our show. If you go to RaymanDigitalMedia.com, it'll be there posted with our show discussion on the site. So Star Trek Strange New Worlds is technically not the first Trek project to embrace LED volume in camera visual effects. That's the technical term. That achievement belongs to season four of Star Trek Discovery, but the new Paramount Plus series is the first in the franchise to to be designed entirely around them. With that in mind, so when they started the the pre-production, this was included in the workflow, whereas Discovery, apparently season four, they weren't quite sure if they would actually be utilizing this new virtual production. Discover Strange New Worlds was very much aware and they included it in the workflow. And that's why Strange New Worlds feels the way it does in scope, cinematically, aesthetically, and so on. So Strange New World's latest series is utilizing something called uh, volume production. Let me get the exact one second here. Okay, so they the let me backtrack here. Fuck, this fucking website doesn't want to load. Hold on one second. (laughs) Okay, so the production for Strange New Worlds takes place in Toronto, Canada, with the show's substantial LED wall work performed on Visual Effects House Pixamondo stage. Uh, LED wall stages was built in partnership with Canadian production rental company William F. White International. The stage is 70 by 30. It's amazing. It's a horseshoe shaped volume that uses Row Visual's Black Pearl EP2 2.8 millimeter LED panels for the walls. Uh, for those people that are Mandalorian fans, this is what the Mandalorian yes. was using. I misspoke during episode four discussion where I said that they both use virtual production, but it's slightly different. Apparently, this is the exact same technology. In fact, the visual effects coordinator, I believe, reached out to the visual effects team for Lucasfilm to talk shop before they jumped into using this. I wouldn't be surprised because nowadays, especially in the virtual uh, VFX field, this seems to be the way we're going. I mean, a lot of people are saying, I, I don't think there was an article I read about this type of production that people were saying, is this going to be the end of green screen? It is. And it's going to be, I don't know because if you like, have the budget now, lower if budget, you have the budget indie films. They're not going to be able to afford an led wall, virtual production stage. You're oh, yeah. just not. No, you're not. You're not going to. So this has, this has segregated the film production community yet again, over the last 15, 20 years, Many indie film producers have been able to do much of what the big guys have done because of the technology being uh, 
mass produced, therefore it's less expensive. And with that allows indie people to start utilizing a lot of the effects that the big guys have been using yes. for, for years. But now that the rules or the game has changed yet again, and it's repositioned Hollywood in a way that they are on the top of the visual effects production food chain yet again, because smaller budgets Smaller TV shows, they're not going to be able to afford this type of technology. Mm -hmm. Oh, there's there. I did find something on this that I have in my notes for it is like uh, there was a website I found for Axios that the director of photography for Star Trek New Worlds, uh, Glenn Keenan, I think it's Glenn Keenan. Mm -hmm. um, he basically stated that like when you compare this to virtual, when you consider virtual production against green screens he basically actually i have it written here with a green screen he says lighting he is achieving a convincing visual look is as a complete guesswork but pixamo's walls which is what you're talking about those led walls can themselves function as a highly adaptable and malleable lighting source giving him and other filmmakers a powerful new creative technique yeah and essentially that's the power of having those led walls it seems silly at first but when you think about it when it comes to filmmaking lighting cinematography and direction if you can see everything it makes your job that much easier with yeah. green screen just like what he said it's a complete guesswork you don't know you have to use the math to make it work <laughs> yeah it, i wonder how and we are getting into some technical jargon and perhaps people may be lost, but I'm, I'm wondering how this will affect previs, you know, which is the process and pre-production where you mm. visually map out scenes in, in, in both movies, commercials, you music might videos. You have removed it with this. I, yeah, I, I, I can see where you still would need to utilize it for some things, but it would really simplify things. So where I say this would be expensive for lower budget productions it also opens the doorway for inexpensive opportunities for big budget films as well, because you are going to be saving some, some steps mm -hmm. in the pro overall production process. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens uh, with the technology. I almost feel like if, if studios are smart there, the way I look at it is there is no one size that fits all when it comes to production. Yeah. Just like you don't use the same, choice of lenses for every movie you don't use the same type of cinematography cinematography for every movie you have to use the right tool for the right job it's what i say about film versus digital like choose the tools that are right for your job yeah. if it ends up being digital fine if it's film fine and perhaps virtual production will end up being the same thing it'll just be another tool in the tool set in that you set. can use so we will see because it does make things easier and it's not perfect yet. There are still some odd shots at moments. If you know what to look for that don't quite work in discovery and also even in Mandalorian, but in strange new worlds, because uh, they were able to include this within their pre-production process, tons of, of, of pros. And there's a few cons as well. And I don't want to bore people who, who don't know what we're yeah, talking because about because unfortunately me and you can go like hours talking about visual effects because like the the field is in a it, it's in a huge i feel it's like it's, a, it's in a huge milestone now with a lot of the technology that's out there i mean if you look at all the the really big budget 
film, uh, not films, but series. They're going high production with a lot of their effects. And it's because of like this technology with the, with the led walls. That's just a game changer because well, you can, when you have 4k led video processors, you know, that are outputting real time animation from unreal engine, not only is this going to save time in, in post-production, but also your actors, they get to visually see, see it. what they don't usually get to see. So rather than acting against, you know, green screen or some other things, they can actually see and it helps with the performance. Every actor that's been interviewed that has had the opportunity to work within the virtual production sets. Yes. They all say this is fucking great for performance. It is because it makes it that much easier. Yeah. So the reason why I even bring this up is I'm glad that Star Trek jumped on this bandwagon quickly and they're relatively, I would say one of three companies that are utilizing this in a big way as of right now. And I'm glad because Star Trek has never been, let's follow the VFX trend. Star Trek has always been the innovator. They, the things they were doing in TNG and Deep Space Nine were cutting edge. Oh, yeah. Cutting edge visual effects using miniatures, the practical effects, just flawless, amazing for that era of television. So, of course, Star Trek today, they need to be the innovators. Yeah. They need to be utilizing things like this. Especially since, you know, like, in all honesty, before Strange and New Worlds, Star Trek has been kind of behind the game when it comes to the VFX department. They've had really great moments. Discovery's had amazing, amazing moments with their v uh, visual effects, but they lack in the game-changing element. Like they're relying on what's already been established, relying on what's established and what's uh, other series have done. Because like Mandalorian was the one who broke the mold on right. the virtual production and everyone basically beforehand was like saying, no, it's too, it's too cost effective. Other it's, films were it's doing too, it, you know, experimental. They were doing, I want to say the first gen, this might be incorrect to, to visual buffs out there, visual effects buffs, but I want to say the first gen of virtual production was actually rear production, which I believe real projection Rear projection. Rear I'm going to get it out eventually. Rear projection, which was utilized, I want to say, on Rogue One as well as Solo. Yes, I, th I believe so. Because I remember me and you talking about which is and looking into it, and there was like a lot of terms of rear projection. Yeah, which is inferior to the new virtual LED walls that they're using. But they were trying to move in that direction, and now here we are. And TV shows are finally able to benefit from it, and it shows. And a fantastic way. I mean, look at that cinematic shot when Hammer threw himself out of the, oh, the starship. Dude, that, that was my favorite shot. It was fucking glorious. It was glorious. It was poetic. It was beautiful. And you could not do that without this nope. technology. And the, the fact of the use of the live actor on the set and a, the ability for all the other actors to play off of him is just amazing. Because like, that scene, I know that me and you in the past have always said, hey, let's put aside a, a shot that we say is the shot of the show and in, or the shot of the episode. For me, it, that shot was Hammer's death scene because that was actually so perfect 
it's a perfect example of why that new technology needs to be used more because you're, it gives you the ability to do shots like that. Well, even the fact that, okay, let, let's look at it from the establishing or let's say from the long shot or the wide shot when they're watching hammer walk to the edge, edge. of the, was yeah. it the cargo bay? Yeah. Is that what that was? The shuttle bay. I mean, the virtual production affords that perspective for the actual cast. They can see that. They see, see that. what's happening. And that adds to the performance. They can see the massive planet in the background, the snow, the storm. I'm sure that all adds to the performance. So, all right. We will cut this visual effects talk down for people who are rolling their eyes and bored. <laughs> <laughs> David, why don't you get us into our final thoughts? Keep it brief. Cause we are, cause we are approaching that hour mark. Final thoughts on this episode. Okay. I'm going to try to keep it short and say what I alluded to earlier in our pre-show. This is my favorite episode by far. I love the writing. I love what Davey Perez was able to do. If you needed to be smacked in the face, this, this episode was an homage to aliens and that, that franchise I mean, if you look how the Gorn are treated, especially the shots they chose, like the shot when La'an is being chased by the Gorn and it goes to that weird, you know, visual look of infrared, very similar to like, say like the predator or very reminiscent of aliens three of the, of the alien chasing the, the cellmates throughout the maze in the, in the, uh, asylum. That reminded me of that. And I really appreciate that this whole episode was an homage to something that is one of my favorite franchises, one of my favorite like inspirations as a filmmaker, which is the alien franchise. And on top of that, you gave the Gorn an absolute terrifying new turn. You turned this species that was a joke into a species that is a viable new threat or the Star Trek franchise. So overall, my score for it is a 98. Uh, I love the episode. It is by far my favorite episode of the season so far. Okay. All right. Yeah, I, I like this episode. I'm not going to dig into all the, the nitty gritty. I've already pretty much sprinkled all of my final thoughts throughout the regular discussion. But I will say this episode was fantastic. I'm going to give it a 95% on the RMD score. I could have asked for a better episode. There's really nothing I can look at and say, well, they should have done this rather than that. It was an excellently written episode. It was a great directed episode. So just well done all the way across the board. All right. This does bring us to the end of our discussion, but I do want to remind listeners to find us on Patreon. If you go to patreon.com slash Rayman digital, you can pledge three to $5 or more a month, and you'll gain access to all of our behind-the-scenes discussions, um, our pre-shows, which is titled Unimatrix Zero, where we, it's pretty much a mini version of this show. It's a little more casual. We talk about things that we aren't able to get to on the regular show. Uh, then, of course, we also put out regular podcast discussions, full discussions, as well on Patreon that are exclusive to that platform by just pledging five bucks, you will gain access to that. And also it helps us stay on the air. It's really the only way we can stay on the air. 
And Star Trek listeners might not have uh, felt the the cut in production this year for us, but I have received a lot of very disenchanted listeners that may not be listening anymore throughout this year, wondering where our shows are. And I'm not talking about just Star Trek. I'm talking about all the other shows we do on this network, the other hosts. And I have told people for three years that if you don't go to Patreon, I'm going to have to cut content. There you go. And people continue not to listen. They're like, ah, fuck these guys. We're going to listen to them, but they don't need any help financially. We just want free. I cut content by 60%. I said I was going to do it. I have to. I have no choice. I can't pay out of pocket anymore on this network. And I have not cut anything on Star Trek. It's the only show on this network that I have not cut. And I don't want to. So please help us. Please go to patreon.com. I don't want to have hate email next year when people wonder where our shows are. And I've cut again. <laughs> please. Patreon.com slash Rayman Digital. Thank you, everyone. I appreciate all of our listeners out there. And thank you, David. Thank you. Live long and prosper. I couldn't help but notice your pain. My pain? It runs deep. Share it with me. End simulation.